You know I don't love you the way I need to, the way that I should. And Yeshua answered, but it's good enough for me. The way you love me right now is good enough. And he recommissioned me to feed my sheep. So the number one qualification isn't how much you know, but how much you love him. And that will do the miracles. That will bring shalom, peace, because nobody else has that message except us. So it's nice just to be able to verbalize and articulate to him what's in our heart. Precious time this morning. Thank you. Well, last week and the week before and the week before, except for the holidays, we've been sort of having a mini-series on questions. Uh, you know, some leaders don't like to go there. Because you might ask me something I don't know. Is that possible? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, it's easy to do that. Okay, um, I'm, I'm going to look at one thing we talked about last week and bring a little point of clarity and then go on to two others today. However, how do you feel when someone says to you, uh, excuse me, uh, I have a question about the Bible. At that moment, how do you feel? The, the, the prayer goes out, Lord, please have him ask me something I know. Don't make me look bad now. Because see, if you were leading a Bible study and they ask you that question, it's usually something you just studied. Oh, oh, and you look good. Oh, okay, I know that one. But if it's cold turkey, if it's been bothering somebody, okay, you know what? But you need to be equipped to answer those kind of questions. Now, when I had, a, I had some really good teachers in Bible College and Seminary, and some of their wisdom was you don't have to have the, all the answers yet. You just have to know where to find them. Because what you can never, never bluff. Never make something up. You, you know, that's not good. Have the intellectual honesty and the hitzbah to say, you know what, I don't know, but I will find out. And go and find out and come back to that person and tell them what you find out. Because all of these difficulties in the scripture all have answers. And almost all of them are fairly easy if you look at the scripture through Jewish eyes. That's who we are. And we can help lots of people. Well, I'm going to, okay, last week we, we, we talked about a certain text in John 6. Turn there, John chapter 6. I was going lightning speed fast last week. <clears throat> I'm going to make sure you got a couple of points. John 6. And the reason I'm doing this is this illustrates uh, how certain things are to, to be interpreted. And it'll take a lot of the pressure off because most of the answers are simple. They're easy. Keep in mind that the Lord wanted farmers and fishermen to understand his word. Okay, it wasn't just for the elite, highly educated. It was for everyone to know and to understand. But I want to t- take a look at some of these connections. <clears throat> so I want to follow... Uh, hang on one second. I don't want to overlap those questions. We have some more from Donna. She's asking some, some really good ones. She couldn't be here today because she's ill. But... Uh, Hers really good. Some of you keep asking the questions. Things that bother you. There's some difficulties in the Bible. There's some difficult things Yeshua said. Difficult things Paul said. But the answers aren't that difficult. We're, we're going to show you some tools to work with. Look at these connections from last week. John 6, verse 33. We'll jump right into the problem here. Okay, uh, We had just fed the 5,000. Bread. They want bread to eat. Bread to eat. He went to the whole dissertation, I am the bread of life, the bread 
from God that came down from heaven. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he. It's him. By the way, he's using his hands, pointing. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Bread gives life. Food gives life. Verse 35. The next verse. Two down. Yeshua said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 41. <clears throat> the Jews, by the way, keep in mind that's Judeans. Remember we talked about that. Uh, then complained about him. <laughs> they still do. Okay. Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, and here's the biggie, has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. How many times does he say this? I am the bread of life. Verse 50. This is the bread, pointing himself, which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Now we're getting in, not just not be hungry, but not die. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is... Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the question you don't want them to ask you, right? But you should be able to answer after last week. We'll see. After today, you will for sure. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Has anybody ever had a problem with this? The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, they still do, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Okay, the problem is in interpreting today, when we get to these, these tough ones, we interpret how we view things today, how we say things today, not how things were said 2,000 years ago. These were common phrases in rabbinic teaching that have easy answers. I mentioned last week, the problem is not what he's saying. He, but the problem is he's applying it to him. You'll see in a little bit how he takes the Shema and says, that's me. Now that is either blasphemy or it's the truth. To love God with your entire being, that's what the Shema says. Yeshua said, love me. He, they were saying, that means you're God? You bet that's what he was saying. That's why they were having a hard time. But I wanted to get into the, the, this interpretation. Then you should have said to them, Most surely I say to you, unless you eat, verse 53, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Is that, a, is that a problem for anybody? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up for the last day. Verse 55. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Wow, this is... Don't you just like to avoid this in the conversation? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, he, oh, this is getting worse and deeper, he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Their problem was he was saying, I can give you eternal life. That was the problem. Our problem is eating his flesh and drinking his blood that's, that's our problem, because we are looking at that through 20th century Western uh, civilization points of view, not even having a, a clue, the teachings of the rabbis at the time. So let's take a look at this. The reason I'm doing this and clearing up a couple of things today is because if you get this one, it unlocks the key of interpretation to many other scriptures. And the good news is it's pretty simple. Well, um, 
at the last... By the way, you, you don't have as much trouble as you think. Let me show you how I know this. Uh, how many of you have ever been, like, in a church where they served communion and you took it? Remember that? Okay. Well, you didn't have a problem with that, did you? Did you have a problem with that? No. I don't think so. Uh, at communion, they quote, okay, Matthew and Mark, sometimes Luke, where it says, he took the bread. He took the bread and said, this is my body, okay, broken for you. Take it and eat it. It's the same thing he's saying here. We have a problem with this, but, but not communion? Think about this. It's the same thing. All right? Take it and eat it. It's the symbolism. It's symbolic of something. We then eat the bread. It goes into us. The symbol of his body. And what happens to that little teeny piece of bread? Usually it's not matzo, but it's supposed to be okay. You know that. What happens? It's absorbed in our body, which is the picture. The, the absorbing all of who he is into us. Then he said, this is my blood. Drink it. And you did. And you didn't have a problem with that because it was symbolic. You were, you were getting that. Okay, we drink the cup symbolic of his shed blood for us. The issue was that he was applying all of these symbols to himself and saying, by the way, I came not from heaven. I wasn't born like the rest of you. It was, it was getting pretty bold stuff here. Okay, I wasn't born like you. I came not from heaven. You didn't. He's saying he's the bread of life. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. That's something only God can give. And he's saying, I can give it. That was the issue. That's the problem. He's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying all of the Shema applies to me. You're, you're to love God with your whole being. This whole thing of the eating and the drinking has to do with absorbing his whole being into us, which is a picture of the Shema. That, that when you love God like that, that's, it's, it's that, that picture. Well, in Scripture, we shared this last week, there's metaphorical and symbolic language used to illustrate biblical truth. Unfortunately, and that's, that's true, in church history, because they lost the Jewish connection, they would make up stuff and say, well, that's a metaphor for this. And then they don't have a clue because they lost the connection of what the rabbis at the time were speaking about. Yeshua was quoting rabbis in these phrases. The problem was, he's talking about him. Okay, it wasn't, it wasn't the words. The rabbis, their literature in Yeshua's time had an abundance of these metaphors, specifically about eating and drinking. Okay, signifying this. The eating meant Torah. Eating equals Torah. Drinking equals good works. A balance of Torah and good works. Sound familiar? A balance, you know, the, the, the facts, the doing, hearing and the doing. It was that balance, but they used those terms of, of the two. Now, at, at this point, you're going to say, well, now, where, where do you get all this information? Okay, one source you absolutely need is David Stern's commentary. Uh, we, we have it. We're, all, we're out of it a lot of the time. But get, get his uh, translation, the complete Jewish Bible, and then the commentary on the Reed Hashah on the New Testament, because it's not the whole thing. He wrote that. It has to do with specific Jewish issues. Now, what's nice is he doesn't give you all the information. He'll say, he'll give you a footnote. And then if you, if you follow the footnote, the, this abundance of literature opens up to you and where you find this stuff and who said what when, the names of the rabbis and, and, and where these things are found. So, you, you know, don't be calling me all the time and saying, 
what's the answer? I want to teach you how to, get, how to find the answers. So you can do your own research and find them. That's a good place to start. Because on these hard things, he on purpose goes into those and shows you what the common thought was at that time. Okay. Hearing and the doing. Book of James. It's about that. Faith and works. Hearing and doing. To eat his flesh. It's a figure of speech. A figure of speech. It simply means to totally absorb his entire being into you. His way of living. His way of thinking. Uh, his way to interpret Torah. He is your rabbi. All right? It's to- totally engulfing yourself in him. We sang that song. That's as simple as you can put it. When he asked Peter his qualifications, as simple as it gets, Peter, do you love me? If you love me, you qualify. If you love me, everything else will work out okay. But if you don't love me, it's not going to work. Do you love me? Do you love me? That little teeny word is a deep, is a deep word. A deep word. Peter would die for his Lord, like his Lord died for him. And he may call us to do that as well. So, will you? Will you? His entire way of thinking, his entire being, to embrace uh, his total being into our total being, that the two of us are one. There's this unity. Steve was talking about with a man just last week. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that you are. And then respond to that in love, like we sang. Loving him, he's the object of that love, of our love. Paul, the Pharisee. You know, and by the way, to, to comment on what Jackson announcement was all about, think about this. In Mersharim, the ultra-Orthodox section of Jerusalem, the rabbis that lived there, the most unlikely person to go and minister to them is, is a woman. A woman. And that's who God uses. The most unlikely. Isn't that, that's amazing. He uses, are you the most unlikely in something? You might be. That's who he, he uses. People just, all you got to do is say, I love you, Lord, and you qualify. And he'll use you because those, I'm guessing that those ultra-relax rabbis look at her and inside they think, she, she really loves him. This can't be just a bunch of hocus-pocus. I mean, she, this is real. It's genuine. It's the real thing. Then the curiosity is, how did you, how does this work? But a woman, most unlikely, most unlikely. Paul the Pharisee, we mentioned this last week, takes this very concept and he quotes it in Acts chapter 26. And, and you know what? Here's what he says. And, and Paul loved the first part of this. He uses it a lot of times in his writings. Paul said, in him I live and move and have my being. Paul was quoting the rabbinic people of his time about, about the eating the flesh and drinking the blood. That's the same thing. As he expressed it, that's easier for us to handle, isn't it? What Paul just said. You go, wow, look at that. And you know what else? Paul kept using that term in him over and over and over again. In him I live and I move and I have my being. All that I am is, is, is in him. With, with Yeshua, he's the object of that being in him. I'm in him. One of Paul, I think it's like 30 sometimes in the book of Ephesians alone, that term is used, in him. It describes a relationship that Yeshua desires of us. He wants us to be in him. Not to know about him only, but to be in him. A very close friendship, like Abraham had, was a friendship, friend of God. Not just knowing facts, passing an exam, but knowing a person, 
How well do you know him? How well do you know him? All right? Personally. See, that's what, that's what it's all about. That's what we have that other religions don't have. They know about God, their God or about their history. We, we are called to know him because he lives. He's alive. Okay? It's not just some, someone who lived. He lives. Uh, he lives in us. Knowing him personally. <clears throat> now, I guess my question is, do you know him? Do you know him? There's several times he says to people, I never knew you. Ooh, is that you? Well, you can still fix that. But that, see, it was the knowing him. It's not, you know, you failed the test because you didn't get the predestination part right on the prophecy connection of how it all works. No, do you know him? I never knew you. But Lord, I, I did all this stuff. I started the congregations. I, I can read Hebrew and I can do the canting and I can... Uh, I, but I, I never knew you. You see? Are you in him? Do you know him? Do you know him? Because that's going to be the question. Not that Peter asks at the gates. He asks it at the gates of you. Do you know him? Do you know him? And what you want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. Whoa. I've got a, I've got a house prepared for you. It's right over here. Verses, you know what? Sorry. And, and you know what? One of the verses says that. Sorry. I never knew you. And they don't go in. The ten virgins, only five went in. Five weren't ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? To drink his blood means to absorb his life. Leviticus, the life is in the blood. That's the picture. That's the symbolism. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Is, uh, this whole picture in this chapter of the bread, it's, it's sustenance, food. Is he your sustenance? Are you feeding on him? Where are you feeding? Where are you feeding? Who's your teacher? Who's your shepherd? Is he your Sustenance. Is he your atonement? We just had Yom Kippur. The picture was, he is your atonement. Who are you trusting for your salvation? Atonement is the blood sacrifice. There's that connection again with the blood. You see, your shepherd. Are you one of his sheep? Are you in his flock? All of those pictures. See, you aren't really a sheep. You're a person. But it takes the picture that opens up a whole area of understanding where people say, oh, I know what sheep are like and what shepherds are like. Oh, we're like sheep and he's like the shepherd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But are you in his flock? Is he your shepherd? Have you left the flock? Have you gone? Have you wandered off? He starts counting. There's only 99. Where's... Well, do you hear from him? Do you hear from him? See, we've been praying that today several times, that we hear from him, that we hear from him. It's not just to go to a worship conference like Becca and Deborah did. And it's fun, and you meet people, and you sing and learn new songs. But did you hear from him? Did you hear from him? And I've shared with you over the years that I hear from him the most during worship. Not mean, I love studying. I learn things. I put stuff together. I say, what? Look at that picture. I can't wait to tell you what I've just learned. But, you know, when I really hear from him is when, I, when I'm worshiping. And I heard from him today. It was nice. It was nice. It was nice. And just a comment on Steve's teaching last week. 
I've been in several conversations this week with some of the men who were, were, were still discussing your teaching. What, well done, by the way, Steve. Well done. Excellent, excellent truth that opened up a door of um, let's keep talking about this stuff. It had to do with being in unity. We can disagree and be in unity. Okay? W- welcome to um, the body of Messiah. <laughs> okay? Some of us are fingers and some are toes and so on. <laughs> okay? Now, what the point I wanted to make in this is that this looked like at one time a very difficult saying. How can this, how can we understand this? It's impossible. It's really simple, especially in the light of the last Seder in what is called communion. You do eat the bread and you do drink the cup in remembrance of him, but it's absorbed into you. But it's only a picture. He's not really absorbed into you in the bread. It's a picture of that. You have to ask for that. And then Paul could say, that's true of me. In him I live and move and have my being. My my reason for existence is him. That's, That's why I live. And you can sing the song we just sang, I love you, Lord, because you have the words, and it's a nice tune, it's easy. Or you can mean it from here, I love you, Lord. And he knows the difference. See, it's a love song. It's a love song. When a man and a woman love each other, they say those words. Okay, some are more gifted than others, and they can actually sing songs like that. I don't have that one so much, but... When you, when you verbalize what's in a heart with words, that's what he wants to hear from us. Is, and it's a feeling. It's not just facts. There are they're feelings. There, there are emotions. He's made us this way to respond on all the levels, uh, the intellectual and the emotional both. Okay, people say, well, the emotions are bad. You get too emotional. If that's all it is, it's not good. But intellectually, it lines up with Scripture. But there's a whole lot of places here uh, just take the word joy. Okay, everybody now stand and express joy. No, no come on. You know, you're, some of these words, the, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, all those various e- emotions. God has made us this way, but they're to be expressed toward him. Well, what about anger? Uh-huh. Anybody in the Bible argue with God? Abraham did. Our father Abraham Argue with God, and he won, by the way. Keep that in mind. It's not wrong to vent your emotions to God. Say, I'm really upset. I'm bothered. I'm whatever. It's okay. He wants to hear from you. He, he says, I've been dying to have you come and talk to me. But come on, let's just talk. Because he, he wants whatever you're feeling to be expressed to him. Because he has the solution to the problem. Now, um, Steve uh, submitted a question. We're not going to get to it today or probably not uh, next week. We will get to it. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's about two pages long when I, when I read it, but it, it, I'll sum it up. Well, okay, look. Psalm 91 is a Shabbat psalm. We love that psalm. You know, we read it every week and so on. But it says there that God's going to protect us in all the different things against this, against this, against this. And i got to tell you, my friend, I've had some get killed in car accidents and some get sick and they get cancer and they die and my family does this. And what about the Holocaust, by the way? Hmm. And uh, Israel was, was, in, was in exile all these times. Wait a second. If that's true, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Okay? Well, in other words, I'll sum it up. Why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people who are believers? It works that way too. 
why do good things happen to the wicked pagans? By the way, several of the prophets asked that same question. Why are the heathen prospering? Well, look at those guys. In sin, they prosper. And look at us. We're poor. Why? That's a good question, Steve. As you can see, it's not going to be covered in five minutes. But there are answers. I'm not going to give you the pat answer by, well, it's the will of God. And uh, some of you, you know, or it could be sin in your life. But see, the problem with it, it could be the will of God sometimes. And it could be sin in your life sometimes. You ever been bothered by the verse that says there's, there, there, there are sins unto death? Does that bother anybody? Can I commit that? Did I? Have I? Good question, isn't it? I think we should talk about that. A sin that leads to death. Yes. We'll talk about those. My point is that the answers aren't that difficult because God wants us to understand the tough stuff, the difficult things. And almost always, you find the answer from a Jewish theological perspective on the language of the time and how it was used then. You look at you look at it, you go, oh, it makes it so much easier. But then you have to ask the question. Well, we live now. There's no temple. There's no this. How do we do this? And that's where the debate and struggle can come in. And you have more than one opinion. And it's not wrong to have more than one opinion or interpretation. In our movement on certain issues, there might be five or six different interpretations about one thing that are all acceptable. But you see, if you're an American coming out of a Christian background in the 20th century, it's either right or wrong, black or white, yes or no. But that isn't Jewish thinking. That is, that is not how the Bible is presented. And that's not the mindset. It's not a Hebraic mindset. Sometimes it's, well, there's... Well, and you fit on the roof. It so well uh, portrays that. When the rabbi at that one point says, well, you're, who's right? They said, okay, who's right? Him or him? And he says, well, you're right. And he goes, and you're right. How can that be? It can be. It can be. There can be more than one perspective of something and still be biblically correct. So... Uh, Maybe we should be a little more tolerant of some people. There's issues where there's no room to budge. There's other issues where we, 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 can, we can budge a little bit. In the movement itself, we have extreme to extreme. And they still love the Lord, and they love each other, and it's okay to be in our movement on some of these extremes. We have extreme charismatic, extreme non-charismatic. Extreme liturgical, no liturgy. We, you take whatever topic, and we, we go to the extreme. But the things that we agree on that this book is the God-breathed, without error, Word of God. This, this is the Word of God. Our rule of faith and practice is this. We can debate how we do certain things, but this is what we follow. Not, the traditions are good to know, but this is not tradition. This is the Scripture. Yeshua is, in the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is not only the, the Messiah, no budging on that one, because we've had people in the past who say, well, uh, he, he, he might be the Messiah, we're not sure. No, we are sure. He is the Messiah. The only one, in fact. And he is God in the flesh. Some of those things that we don't budge. Okay, now what about when is the second coming? You want to go by my calendar? Or? Well, we can, there's, there's room on this. So far, all the people that have predicted have been wrong, right? What did Yeshua say about the date? He said, be ready, and then you're ready. Because human nature is, I'm going to get ready the day before. Okay? Run my credit cards up as high as they go. 
because I won't have to pay them, right? I got a sneaky suspicion it's not going to work quite like that. We're all accountable for, for, for our sins. Well, so, there, there's room for different uh, perspectives on some things, on some things we don't budge. And it's okay to ask, to ask what those are. It's just fine. And these questions are doing just that. Well, I want to uh, quickly look at one more. Maybe, maybe one. Maybe two. We'll see. Okay, this is Anna. She's not here, so I'll step on her toes again. All right. Uh, there was two in this one. I'll go, I'll go to the second one. Oh, okay. She, she was asking in the book of Acts the term God-fearers. It was Acts 17 because we studied Acts 16. She kind of w- was reading ahead a bit. It talks about in the synagogue uh, in Athens, there were Jews and God-fearers. It separates. In other words, how come it says Jews and God-fearers? She said, who are, who are the God-fearers? But it gets deeper than that. That's the start of the question because there's several terms other than, than Jews that are used to people in the synagogue. Who were those people? What did they believe? And how did this all work? That's, that's, a, good, that's a good question. Because the, the conclusion of all that has to do with who we are. As a Messianic Jewish congregation in the 20th century, made up of Jewish people and non-Jewish people who worship together. So the question then comes is, well, when you, should we have a conversion process in Messianic Judaism where you convert to being a Messianic Jew? That's a good question someone should bring up. That's a good question, but I'm going to answer that when we hit this uh, next week. Um, but what about, okay, um, if I am a Gentile and I'm a part of the Messianic movement, doesn't that make me a Jew? No, it doesn't. So we're going to clarify some of those things because those have been issues and problems with people in the past. God has an identity. And by the way, part of it is bloodline. All right? I'm not Jewish. And I say that. And I lead a Jewish congregation. And again, the key phrase, and see, missionaries get this, but a key phrase is this. We who are, because when you went to Uruguay, the question is, how does it work if you're not Jewish? Because they were mixed like us. The, God, the Lord did this, and he gave these non-Jews a heart for, for Jews and for Israel and to, to worship together. And they go, well, how does this work? How does it work? And the, the answer is, we, who are not Jewish, identify with Jews and Judaism and history and Israel, but we don't identify as them. You see the difference? We identify with them, not, I don't identify myself as a Jew. Now, um, if we go back 50, 60 years to Hitler's time frame, guess where that would land be? In the ovens. Okay? Because I'm identifying with Jews. They didn't like that. So keep that in mind, you who are not Jewish. Okay? And we do not have a conversion process. And it's actually against scripture to do that, I'll show you what I mean by that. Not today, next week. Now, before you get too upset with me on that one, uh, the issue, that the question that came up was, do Gentiles have to convert to Judaism to be saved? That was the question. And the answer in Acts 15 is no. They do not have to. Okay, in fact, Paul said, leave, leave them alone. There's so much, this is overwhelming. 
all the stuff they have to learn, just let them ease into it. Don't make anything require them, except, notice the, the, the requirements in Acts 15? It was a requirement. Part of it was diet. Any questions on diet? We're going to talk about that. They said they need to be sensitive to how we eat because a lot of fellowship is at the table. So they need to eat different than the pagans do. And other, other things, uh, no, no fornication. Well, that, that was, it was logical. We do the basics, and then we learn how to do all the rest. But a conversion process, they said no. But we'll talk in more detail about that. Donna goes on. Uh, I asked this, uh, it seems that evangelicals have a rather schmaltzy view of the fear of God. How can God only be a God of awe and reverence? When scripture says he's a consuming fire and a jealous God. It, it, what's with the awe and, and, and what's with the reverence? And when, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing. Uh, so what's the deal? How does it work with God being uh, 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 jealous? We talked about jealousy with the kids today. Jealousy. Well, m- many of the problems that we have have to do with the English translation of the words and the concepts. And, and uh, it's... it's it's a big issue when you translate something from Hebrew and from Greek into any language. Now, some things are very simple. And, and you can get excited about what, what, what these words mean. The word meanings, they're very, very important. But here's the problem. Some words don't have an, a counterpart in the next language. There's no equivalent in English for this Hebrew word or this Greek word. What do you do? What do you do with it? I have been in meetings people way smarter than me who prayerfully struggle over what, how to translate that word. Because there's five ways you can do it. And they're all acceptable. What is the right one? And it's, it's hard. And so these professors, when you ask those kind of questions, they say, the solution is that you learn Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> that, that is their answer. And then, then you, can, you can read it for yourself. But you see, we can't all do that. So how do we know what translations we can trust? And not trust. And next week, I'm going to show you some. And I'm sure we have some of these in your laps today. Translations, I'm going to take you to a couple of verses and show you things that are in your Bible that just aren't there. Somebody stuck it there, but it's not there. And they, some people make big doctrines out of sentences that don't exist because somebody stuck it in. And the way you find that out is you go to an interlinear of the Greek and the Hebrew and you look at the words. And sometimes there's two or three words not there. People have stuck them in to clarify how we're supposed to be. But God never said that. And in one or two cases, there's about five or six whole verses that have been inserted to clarify. Okay, I want to know what God said. And I want to teach you what God said. And the good news is, because of textual criticism, great science. When that, when that came into being about 80 or 90 years ago... The liberal theologians announced, now we're going to show you, people like us, that you're wrong. Okay, that we're right and you're wrong, and that you cannot, this is a book that you cannot trust. There's, there's mistakes and errors all through this, and we're going to now prove it with the science of textual criticism. Don't ever let those kind of things bother you, okay? Because God allows these brilliant scholars to go out on a limb, and all this stuff, out on a limb. And write their books out of the limb, and they get way out there, and then God chops off the limb. <laughs> and they look at us, and sometimes they have to admit, you were right. You were right. Okay? 
in fact, if you, uh, in time past, we, we've talked about the reliability of this book as far as, is this what John wrote? Is this what Isaiah wrote? I, because I want to teach you truth. If Isaiah didn't say it, I don't want to say Isaiah said this. If John didn't say this, I don't want to say John said this. I want to teach you the truth. Don't be afraid of truth, by the way. Don't be afraid of truth. If there's a mistake, I want to know where it is and tell you that. Don't, wouldn't you want to know that? Some people don't. They want to say, don't have any mistakes, because they'll ruin my whole faith. How deep is your faith? Okay, the science of textual criticism has come through for us. Josh McGill, you have to get his current book, because every time there's a, a reissue, there's like thousands of more documents that they found that, that verify that what we have is the truth. Okay, it's, it's, there, there are thousands of documents fragments of, of the New Testament that read word for word, word for word. Okay, in all that, not today, but there, there, there's we, someday we'll have some fun and tell you how this thing works. It's really simple. It's a science. But what they found was, and we can trust this, a Bible the size of my Bible. Okay, this, this size Bible. If you were to take all the mistakes, all the errors, all the problems, insert, you know, an enthusiastic scribe, here's how it would happen. A scribe would make a little note on the side. Okay, you're not supposed to do that. You know how the scribes work. And the next guy copying it takes that note and inserts it into a verse. They've, they're adding to the Word of God. Not supposed to do that. And then they take that and publish that. Anyway, so we know where all those are. And in the future, I can tell you how we know. Do you want to know how many mistakes there are? If you were to take a Bible this size, okay, one-fourth one fourth of one page in the Bible this size is errors and, and things that have been added to that Isaiah or John did not say. That's not much. And the good news is we know exactly where they all are. Every single one. And when, when I come to that in my teaching, I will tell you. An example is the last few verses of the book of Mark. All right? We wouldn't have to go there. But it's, it's, it's great. But Mark didn't write that. It's true. You should have said that stuff other places. But Mark didn't record that in his book. So we have to be intellectually honest and say, you know what? If we're teaching the book of Mark, this is a truthful saying that some scribe inserted, but it is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. You can find those truths other places. I'm not saying that's not, it's not truthful stuff. Mark didn't write it. So we end the book of Mark where Mark ended it, to be intellectually honest. And in so doing, the other side of that coin is really good news. The prophecies, the outlandish ones that name people's names, give dates, all these things, about who the Messiah is, uh, when he's coming, and so on, those are all there, intact, every single one. They're intact. God's word is sure. You can trust this book. Your English translation, there's a few little problems. We'll show you, I'll show you one next week. I'll give you a hint. Oh, uh, let, me, let me finish the, this first. The word, the word jealous God. I'm a jealous God. In the King of Man, I'm a jealous God. That, does that bother anybody? It's English. That's the problem is. The word is zealous. I'm a zealous God. That's the right word. Next time you see the word, insert the word zealous. He's full of energy. He's zealous. There's zeal. It's not jealousy. So somebody did a word there. So that's how easy some of these things truly are. What's that just, oh, for next week? Remember I mentioned diet. 
Dare we go there? Probably not a week goes by which I'm not confronted by some a Christian person that truly loves the Lord. I mean, truly loves the Lord with all their heart, with all they are, who wants to argue with me on, on diet and stuff and call me a legalist and all this kind of stuff. Well, let me clear up one thing. By the way, if you know me, you know that I'm not a legalist, so if you follow me around sometime. <laughs> but the question is this. Is it legalism if you do what God said? That's not legalism. But legalism is if you do something that God didn't say and then act like he said it and tell other people. See, that's what the Mishnah is. It's, it's trying to be helpful, but God didn't say that stuff. But some people act like he did. It's important to know the Mishnah, the oral law, and, and the, these interpretations to shed light on how they saw this. But there's a big difference. That's why Yeshua, when he would talk, would say things like, you've heard that it was written. He's referring to the scriptures. When he says, you've heard that it was said, that's the oral law, later codified the Mishnah in the year 200 by Yehuda Hanasi in Zippori. And when you go to Israel, we'll take you to that very town, which is right next door to Nazareth. But he didn't put the same weight, the same authority, on what was said versus what was written. Because God said this. Man said that. There are good commentaries of things men said. It's not the same as what God said. Big difference. You should know the difference. So back to the food thing. Because there's two verses people use to kind of clear the whole thing up. There's one of them in Mark 7 where at the end of it it says, and he declared all foods clean. Remember that verse? He declared all foods clean. Bad news first. Mark didn't say that. If you take the Greek, I'm going to bring you some Greek texts right up here next week. You can look at it for yourself. It is not in the text. It is not there. Mark didn't say that. Better than that, Yeshua didn't say that. He didn't say that. Well, then what does all that stuff mean? We're going to talk about it because it's back to the same stuff that we just did here about the eating and the drinking and the rabbinic perspective. On what defiled, The question was, what defiles a man? The Pharisees came to Yeshua and they said, your disciples don't wash their hands in the right way. It's not that they weren't clean. There was a ritual hand washing. That they didn't do it the Pharisaical way. So there was criticism. Yeshua was saying, it's, it's not these outward things that people do that defile a man, but it's what's in his heart that does. And he talked about foods and so on. But then when he declares all foods clean, he didn't say that. But let me get you thinking. Then we're going to end. Um, he did declare all foods clean. He did. Oh, define food. Well, actually, he does that. He tells us what is food and what is not food. And all food is clean. You don't, ha- you don't have to eat meat if you don't want to. But if I want to, I can because he, allowed, he told me what certain kinds. See, it, it's not either or a black and a white, yes and no. But the, the marvels of what God said give you a whole lot of freedom with boundaries. And it's all for your own good and your own health. All of it is. It is. And uh, I don't think any of you, I hope, are called to walk around pointing the finger at everybody who's doing it wrong. Don't do that. Hey, don't do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And when, when people say to me, um, 
Do I enforce certain things? I pray that the Lord will speak to you, that you seek him, you listen to him, and he tells you what to do. And then you do what he says. I don't, at Christmas time, I don't drive around looking for lights and, and Christmas trees and, and, and record it because I might think you shouldn't have those. I don't do that. If you want to buy me a present, I'll give you my sizes and colors. It's just fine. Okay? I'm just saying don't be a judge. You're not called to be a judge. The Spirit of God does that. We're called to love people and to build bridges of friendship and understanding. And if we love him with all of our being, we'll love people. We'll love people. And, you know, with the Arab-Israeli conflict, it's very easy to be anti-Arab. Please don't. Yeshua loves them, and he died for them. We should be praying for them. At the wedding I'm doing this evening, <laughs> the most unlikely... There's a petite, young, blonde, blue-eyed woman who's a missionary to the Muslims in Indonesia. I look at her and I go, the most unlikely person. Not in God's economy. Because we, we represent the Messiah who loves. And that word is not in the Koran. All right? But we need to go, not say the word, but be the word. So don't be anti-Arab. Be pro-Yeshua. Yeshua. Let's all stand. I'm going to pray and then John's going to come and lead us in the ironic.